for our time then this after this morning. Let us return to Ephesians chapter 2. We want to choose for our text verse 12. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 for our text where we read that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. And seeking the Lord's blessing, we would like to meditate upon these words as we find them in context. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. I'm sure that the former generation and former generations would look upon this generation and in the time that we live in and they would be, would be amazed. They would be amazed at the, the luxury that we have in our homes. All our electrical equipment, our computer equipment, our warm homes and I need not go on but we live in luxury compared to former generations and if they came back they would be absolutely amazed at the things that we take for granted and they would surely lay this charge to us that we do not appreciate what we have and I think that is true no matter how much we are thankful and grateful, we don't fully appreciate what we have in temporal things in this day and generation. Because it is true to say that largely the population is very discontented. This can be true in the spiritual level also. The Apostle Paul was writing to the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul, as he was writing, he was in Rome and he was in prison. He was in chains for the gospel. And he wrote this epistle in the year approximately AD 62. And he was instrumental in bringing this congregation into being about 10 years before that. So it's a relatively new congregation. And he's writing to them. And what is he saying to them? In this letter, he is basically telling them, the Christians in Ephesus, how rich they are. And they're rich in Christ. You know, when we talk about riches, many people, will, their mind will instantly go to money or to possessions or to other things. They'll be thinking in terms of worldly riches. That's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here at all. When he talks about riches, and this is really what this, this epistle is about, that they would realize the spiritual riches that belong to the Christian in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants the Christians there in Ephesus to delight and to gloat and to appreciate what Jesus Christ has given delivered and bought for them by his life, by his death, 
by his resurrection and by the fact that he sits at God's right hand where he has dispensed gifts to his people. Now, in Paul's day, an adopted child had all the rights and privileges of a natural-born son or daughter. That's what it was like. The Roman judicial system recognized an adopted child as a new person. And all their obligations from before were cleared. The slate was wiped clean. They were new individuals when they were adopted into the family. That is the position and the privilege of the Christian. The Christian not only has his sins forgiven. A wonderful blessing, of course. He has this blessing. But there's more. A Christian is accepted into the family of the living God. You know, you can have a pardon. But that doesn't give you acceptance into the king's palace. But yes... With the gospel. Our sins are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. We are adopted into the family of the living God. We have glorious and wonderful spiritual blessings. That belong to every single individual. And let's remind ourselves here. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Around the time of the New Testament. 60 million slaves. Many of these Christians would be slaves. And they wouldn't have a penny to rub together. They wouldn't even have a life. They belong to someone else in a physical sense. But if they're in Christ, they have riches. Riches that cannot be calculated And that is the same for the Christians today. Does the Bible not tell us? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is what Christianity is all about. New life. A new beginning. The old is gone. The old life is finished. It's been erased in some sense. Oh yes, we can go back. We can think about the old life. We can think about the way that we lived. We can think about the mistakes we made. We can think about our errors. We can think about our corrupt old lives. And we can benefit from thinking about these things in order that we would not fall into the trap again. But... As far as God is concerned, the slate is wiped clean. A new life. Now, the Apostle Paul wants them to appreciate what they have. And how does he do this? Well, he reminds them about their former state. Verse 12, our text, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers 
from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. And he wants to remind them of the old life, that they might be encouraged when they consider their new life, and they would see the tremendous contrast between their old idolatry and paganism and be what they have in Christ, freedom and liberty and new life. Well, that's what I want to dwell with you this morning. And there are four things, and they come directly from the text. There's nothing difficult in it. There are four negatives here that highlighted their life previous to when they became Christians. And we want to look at it with a twofold view in mind. When we look at this, we want to encourage the Christian that they might appreciate what they have in Christ. And that this might lead them to humility and to thankfulness and to gratefulness and to appreciation. But we also want for others who don't have this, who are not Christians, that they might seek the Saviour, that they would receive these things that can only be found in Christ. So with the help of God, we want to look then at four things. And what are the four things that we find in this verse that speak of their previous life? Well, surely the first thing is without Christ. At that time, you were without Christ. He reminds them of a time. What's that time? The time is the time before they became Christians. They were not Christians. Therefore, they did not have the Lord Jesus Christ. They were without Christ. Now, what does the word Christ mean? Well, the word Christ means anointed one. And in the Hebrew, it's Messiah. They were without Christ. They were without the Messiah. That was their life. They had no understanding. They had no mention. They knew nothing about the Messiah or Christ at all. And of course it speaks to us. When we talk about Christ. When we talk about the Messiah. It speaks to us of a saviour. Because that's what the Messiah was. Or that's what the Messiah was to be. And we'll look at this later on, but basically, at this point, we would notice that the Jews had this great hope before them. What was the hope of the Jews in the Old Testament? The hope of the Jews was that they looked forward to a day when a Messiah would come, a Deliverer would come. Now we know they had a wrong perception of that Messiah. But, for our point here, we would notice that they had this great hope. They had a hope that someone would come who would be a Messiah, who would deliver them out of bondage, away from foreign denomination, and make them a great nation again. That's what they believed. That was the hope of them. Now, of course, when Christ came, they rejected him because as far as they were concerned, Christ did not meet their expectations of the Messiah. But they had this hope. But the 
Christians in Ephesus, they never had this hope. And indeed, all the Gentile world never had this hope. They, never, they were never looking for that day when the Messiah would come. They were without Christ completely. So the Jews did look for someone who would save them. You may well ask then, why do we need to look for a saviour? This is so counter-cultural, is it not? Are we not inclined to be taught today and to believe today that man is the, is the master of his own destiny? And any problems that man encounters, man is able to deal with them. Man can sort it out. Is that not what we're led to believe today? But the Jews knew they needed someone who would deliver them. And we need someone who will deliver us. We need a saviour. Even today in the 21st century, we need a saviour. Why do we need a saviour? I realise this is a, a very basic question. And many here will be able to answer. But there may well be others who will not be able to answer. But this is the most fundamental question that we can ask ourselves. Why do we need a saviour? We need a saviour, friends, because we have sinned. Sin is our great problem. If we go right back to the beginning, if we go back to our, our first parents, if we go back to Genesis, and indeed we would build our theology from the book of Genesis... But as we go back to the book of Genesis, as we go back to the beginning, we notice that God created Adam and Eve perfectly. Adam out of the dust and Eve out of Adam. And they were perfect and they had a glorious relationship with their creator. There was no sin then at the beginning, but sin came. Adam and Eve disobeyed. A clear commandment that God had given to them and sided with God's enemy, the evil one. That changed, we might say, the course of history. And because all of us have come from Adam and Eve, we have inherited their sin. You might say, well, that's very unfair. I know nothing about what happened to Adam and Eve. I wasn't there. How can I be held responsible? Well, the Bible would teach us that when Adam sinned, we sinned. We were in him. He was our head. We've all come from him. He represented us. And therefore, when he fell, the whole of the human race fell. Now, as we said, this is countercultural. You'll not find this in our schools today. And you'll not find it in our media today. But we cannot make sense of our world until we first grasp that mankind has fallen. And mankind needs to be saved. And the only way to be saved is to have a saviour. Because we cannot do it ourselves. Our catechism teaches us that the fall was a, a very serious thing. You know, people laugh at it. They they say, oh, simply because Adam and Eve ate some fruit. That the world has been plunged into sin with all its consequences. Surely this is ridiculous, they'll say. 
fact, we know that the sin they committed was a sin against a thrice holy infinite God. It was treason of the highest order. It was no light matter to disobey God who had created them and who had created a wonderful environment for them. It was no light matter. It was a terrible sin. And as the Catechism teaches us, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And that's where we find ourselves today. And that's the way it will be until the end of time. This world is in an estate of sin and misery. And we can see this working out in our own private lives, in our homes, in our families, in our neighbourhoods, in our communities, in the nations of the world. We're all dominated by this, an estate of sin and misery. Well, that's the way they were. They were without Christ, without a saviour. That is the environment they were delivered from. Friend, I have to tell you that if you are without Christ today, you have been pictured in this. You're in an estate of sin and misery. And in order to be taken out of this state of sin and misery, you need Christ. This is what took them out of this state of sin and misery. It was that they heard the gospel. The gospel was proclaimed to them. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was brought to their attention. Paul told them about the Son of God who came down from heaven to rescue sinners. And if they put their faith and hope and trust upon him, they shall be saved. That's what he preached to them. And by the blessing of the Holy Spirit they believed. And they were brought into Christ. So that they were no longer without Christ. Secondly, he notices here something else. And it's a a direct connection with what we have been saying. First of all, they were without Christ. And then being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. What's he talking about here? What were they without when he mentions this? Well, to put it very simply, friends, they were without special revelation. They didn't have the Hebrew Bible. The Jews were given the scriptures. The Jews were given the oracles of God. The Gentiles were not. All the Gentiles had was general revelation. What does that mean? General revelation is what we see around us. God has revealed himself in creation. Psalm 19 at verse 1, we we sing it very often. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. What is that verse teaching us? That verse is teaching us when we open our eyes and when we look around and we see the beauty and the glory of creation, we see something of God. 
God reveals himself. Creation demands a creator. And that's what's called, or that's part of what's called, general revelation. It's general in the sense that every single human being gets this revelation. It's not special, it's general. It's given to everyone. That's all the Gentiles had. Now, general revelation leaves a person without excuse. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, he talks about, in these verses, the revelation that the Gentiles had. And of course, these people there were Gentiles. And indeed, they will always be Gentiles. They will never be Jews. They will always be Gentiles. But Paul talks about the the general revelation that the Gentiles had. And he says this in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 20. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now we're not going to dwell upon these verses too much, but there are a number of things that we might highlight from these verses, which were true for the Gentiles, which are tr true for every single person that lives. God reveals himself in our conscience. You have a conscience. The conscience is not perfect. It is affected by sin. But nevertheless, the conscience is there. It is God's stamp, part of God's stamp that he has put upon every single one of us. That's why we know when we do something right or when we do something wrong. It is God who has put the conscience in us. And therefore, he has left a witness, an internal witness in every one of us. And he also mentions about another. For God hath showed it unto them. What's he showed unto them? He's shown the creation. That's another witness. So you have this twofold witness. The conscience and creation. What are they telling us? They're telling us. And this is important for us to grasp. They are not just telling us there is a God. They are telling us that there is the God of the Bible. It's a specific God. Every one of us has this knowledge. The conscience, creation, they're crying out to us. God is the God of the Bible. So that... We are without excuse. Many people say they don't believe in God. We recognize that's what they say. But the Bible says to that individual who says there is no God, you have no excuse for that. Why? Because God has revealed himself in your conscience, in creation, so that you are without excuse. And therefore, we can say the Bible does not recognize an atheist. 
There is no such thing as an atheist, as far as the Bible is concerned. Yes, we know that people live without any reference to God. That is true. But the Bible does not recognize an atheist. Now, what's the point that I'm trying to drive at here? Well, the point is that all this general revelation reveals to us the God of the Bible. But it does not reveal to us that God is a Savior. That's the difference. And we need special revelation to reveal to us the Savior. Now these people, the Gentiles, they didn't have this revelation. They didn't have the Old Testament. They were without it. But Paul came in the New Testament times and he brought the gospel because things have changed. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past to the fathers by the prophets, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1. But in this last days he has spoken unto us by his Son. There's a difference. Before they didn't have this special revelation. Now they do. Oh friend here today. Christian and non-Christian. Do you appreciate the wonderful blessing that's yours? You have the scriptures. You have the gospel. You have God's complete and final word to mankind. In the scriptures. They didn't. At one time the Gentiles didn't. It was hidden from them. It was confined only to the Jews. They were without the word of God. Sadly today many despise the word of God. They won't have it. They are despising this glorious treasure. Because it's only in the word of God that you'll find the way of salvation. It's only in the word of God that you'll hear about the Saviour who has come. Therefore, let us treasure the word of God. Friend, if you're still an unbeliever today, get into your Bibles, begin to read your Bibles, open up the word of God, read the Gospels, begin maybe in Mark's Gospel, read that Gospel. Oh, there you'll see the Saviour who moved and worked and did wonderful things. Pray that the Lord would open up your eyes that you might behold wondrous things out of his law. Don't despise the means of grace because these poor individuals 2,000 years ago knew nothing of it. And we are in some sense saturated with it. But are we really benefiting from it? Secondly, thirdly, we notice they were without hope, having no hope. What a terrible position to be in, having no hope. But this describes multitudes today, does it not? How many people will be brought into this world? They will go through the infant stage, early schooling, adolescence, youth, middle-aged life, middle old age, 
into eternity. What hope have they got? They have no hope unless they have Christ. It's, this is the stark reality. This is what the Bible teaches us. That if we don't have Christ, we have no hope. You might have a full bank balance. You might have property. You might have a spouse. You might have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. You might have lands. You might have power. You might have influence. You might have everything that this world can give you. But friends, if you pass into eternity without Christ, you have no hope. None whatsoever. It doesn't matter what a clergyman will say when they gather for your funeral. It doesn't matter his oration or whatever. It won't count. And no matter how much money you might have, it won't cut currency in the world that is to come. You're going to leave everything behind. Everything. Everything that you value. You'll leave it all behind. And you'll perish without any hope. Now, the Christians here, they're to realize what a glorious hope is there for the Christian. How can we say that? Well, we can say that, friends, because we go to the cross and we see that there the Savior being taken down from the cross, dead. Oh, we see him being put into the tomb. We see Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking his body off the cross and putting it into the tomb, caring for the body as best as they could, and then sealing the tomb. And then what happens, friends? What happens on the first day of the week? What happens on the Lord's day? He arises. He's alive forevermore. He's at God's right hand. He has conquered death, our greatest enemy. And because he lives, all his people shall live. He's our head. And one day, all will gather together to be with him. That's the glorious hope that awaits every Christian, even Christians who are paupers, even just newborn Christians, even Christians who are not great Christians in the sight of the world. Maybe they're immature, maybe they're lacking much knowledge and they're much to learn. But nevertheless, that's the hope that's before every single Christian. Oh friend, ask yourself today, have you got this hope? Do you have this hope? Do you look forward to that day when Christ shall return? They had no hope before. You can't imagine the great contrast of having no hope. And now... Full of hope. And when they're full of hope, they'll be able to stand up against persecution. They'll be able to bear it. Why? Because they have this glorious hope. And I want to tell you, friends, the Bible would say that hope's for every one of us if we put our faith and hope and trust upon Jesus Christ. Even today, 
Put your faith in him. Come unto him. You'll have this glorious hope. Do you know what's going to happen tonight, tomorrow, the next week? We don't know these things. This might be the last time you'll ever hear the gospel. That day will come. You know, that day will come when it will be the last day. And you'll never hear the gospel again. Have you got a hope? Every Christian has a glorious hope. Fourthly and finally, we have another negative. Having no hope and without God in the world. What does he mean by this, without God? God is omnipresent. We cannot hide from God. We cannot get away from him. Whatever we might find ourselves, we cannot escape him. He's always there. He always knows what we're thinking, what we're saying, what we're doing. We cannot hide from him. In that sense, we are never without God. Even in hell, you'll not be without God. In fact, as someone rightly said, God is hell for the unbeliever. But when he says here, without God, what he means is we don't have a right relationship with God. Adam and Eve, in the beginning, they did have a wonderful relationship with God, their creator. Sin broke that relationship. These Gentiles... They had no relationship with God at all. They hadn't got a right relationship. And that's the way it is today. If Christ is not our Lord and Saviour, we don't have a right relationship with God. God is certainly our Creator. And God lavishes good gifts upon the just and the unjust. But we don't know Him as a sa- in a saving manner. And therefore we don't have that right relationship. And what's more, we cannot change that relationship. We don't have the inclination, we don't have the power, we don't have the desire. God must do it. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 8, So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're an unbeliever today, you cannot please God. You cannot please God by coming to the church. You cannot please God by giving money, all your money, everything you have. You cannot please God unless you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way. And these people were without God in the world before. Now, now as Christians, this God is their heavenly Father. The relationship is all changed. And it's changed because this great problem of sin has been dealt with. That's what the gospel does. Where are we today then, friends? 
they were without Christ, without the Bible, without the Word of God, without hope, and without God. Their lives have been transformed. They now are in Christ, and they have been subjected to the Word of God. They've heard the Gospel, they've believed it. They have a glorious hope. And now they have a wonderful relationship with God their Father. This is what's in the Gospel. This is what's for everyone who will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there, friends. Come, therefore, call upon him, seek him while he may be found. I should have said my title, Rich in Christ. The Christian is truly rich. In riches that can never perish. In riches that the world cannot give and the world cannot take away. If you're in Christ then, believer, you truly are rich. Amen and may God bless his word to us.